Hello and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today we're talking about the Canadians who volunteered to fight in Spain and the organizations they fought with, the International Brigades and the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Kevin Levangi, who is a research assistant on Canada and the Spanish Civil War. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kevin. Um, I'm from uh, New Brunswick, but right now I'm living in Toronto. Uh, I have an MA from Carleton University in uh, English, and my kind of MA project was on Norman Bethune and his uh, aesthetic theory, specifically uh, one of the letters that he wrote from Spain. Yeah, so Kevin worked on the project when he was in his undergrad, right, for two summers? Yep, yeah, well, that was at uh, Mount Allison. Yeah, and then he went to do his master's and then came back with even more knowledge <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, skills. something like that, for sure. Between us, we know a lot about this. Um, Kevin knows mm-hmm. things I don't know and vice versa, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to give the most thorough information. And we're also going to be drawing on a lot of sources. Um, I'm not always going to cite them by name, but if you go to our website, you'll see that there are show notes posted under SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. And there you'll find information and links to all the websites, books, and other texts that we mention in the episode. So in the first episode, I introduced the International Brigades, a group of volunteers who traveled from around the world to support the Republican effort in Spain. So I mentioned that more than 1,700 Canadians volunteered in Spain. Many of them eventually fought with the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, which was a majority Canadian battalion. So today we're going to dig into the story of that battalion, and we're going to talk about how that battalion was formed, who belonged to it, and what it meant for Canadians at home and in Spain. So let's get started. So the the International Brigades uh, emerged out of a call for solidarity and support for the Republicans in Spain. As early as August 1936, the Comintern, the Communist International Organization, began discussing the need to recruit and organize the international volunteers who were already trickling into Spain. Uh, The Comintern began recruiting out of Paris with various communist organizations in other countries functioning as the point of contact for potential volunteers. And so this this sort of more kind of formal process of uh, organizing volunteers from around the world, mostly through communist parties in their respective countries, complemented um, kind of the existing flow of, of independent volunteers into the country of Spain. And kind of one of the more interesting, I guess, sources of volunteers was that uh, in 1936, the Summer Olympics were being held in Berlin, Germany. And there was obviously a widespread boycott of these Olympic Games because they're being hosted by the explicitly racist and aggressive Nazi government. As an alternative to the official Summer Olympics in Berlin, a People's Olympiad was to be held in Barcelona in July of 1936. So when the fascists staged their coup against the Republican government, the People's Olympiad was cancelled, but many of the athletes, supporters, and journalists had already arrived, and some turned their attention to supporting the Spanish people and resisting the fascist coup. One of these journalists was uh, Muriel Ruckheiser, 
who wrote about this time in her novel Savage Coast and her semi-autobiographical poem Mediterranean. Uh, both texts feature a love interest, a German athlete who stays in Spain to fight, eventually joining the International Brigades. Ruckheiser's real-life lover, Otto Bock, was a German exile in Spain uh, to compete as a long-distance runner. He died in Spain near the end of the war, and he was one of the more than 35,000 international volunteers who chose to make the Republican struggle their own. Each one came with their own politics, skills, ideals, and histories. And I added in that story about Muriel Ruckheiser, because I really love that novel and that poem, and it's a really great text to check out if you want to learn about the very beginnings of the Spanish Civil War and how it was experienced in the, like in the first moments with the general strikes and the flow of people and the Olympiad that had to be cancelled. So, yeah, it's a great text to check out. I, I haven't uh, read that one before, but it, it does seem to, to point to one of the interesting kind of facets of the, the international volunteer strike in Spain that, that we aren't going to talk about too much, I guess, because the, the Canadian contingent was mostly pretty centrally organized. So, yeah, the North American volunteers didn't really get to Spain on their own. They mostly came with the help of, of the communist parties, but it is kind of interesting to keep in mind when you're hearing about a lot of these volunteers that, uh, especially in the early stages, they were sort of freelance. Uh, you know, some of them were the members of the People Olympiad. Others were stowaways on, on ships and uh, people who had just kind of been in Spain for their own reasons and joined these really decentralized militias that were very active in the, the earliest days of the, of the, the coup and then the, the civil war that followed. Yeah, and many of them were already exiles from other countries. So you mentioned that Otto Bach was a German exile, and there were many other German exiles who ended up in Spain. And I guess they would have had to leave Germany because of their communist ideals, or because they were Jewish, or because of... I'm not sure what else they would have been persecuting at that time, like queerness, gender... Yes, so all kinds of reasons. So as early as 1936, there was already a large population of German exiles who would have been engaged in this new fascist or anti-fascist struggle. Yeah, and the the Germans and the Italians in particular get a lot of kind of credit as you look through the different sources, partly for their, you could call it commitment to the cause. I mean, this was really seen as the, their last chance of, of regaining a homeland, that sort of thing. I mean, there's that um, really incredible uh, song that the Peapog soldiers that's supposed to have been smuggled out of uh, a German concentration camp by socialists and communists, and it became the, the marching song of a lot of the Republicans mm-hmm. in, in Spain. And that, what, what I find really interesting about, I guess, the, both the early stages of this war and the um, kind of the non-intervention committee and its relationship with, with the international community. Sorry, can you explain what the non-intervention committee is? Because I definitely did not explain it last episode. Right. I'm, I'm fairly certain that it was an official League of Nations organization that was put together to ostensibly put a damper on the war in Spain to prevent, you know, it becoming a proxy war of, of the you know, great European powers, particularly the, the fascists uh, and the Soviet Union. Although fascists aren't really known for respecting the rule of law, so there wasn't much of a, an interest on their behalf of of not flooding the country with, you know, arms and, and volunteers. And the Nazis sent in thousands of, of pieces of, you know, uh, weaponry and of various sorts. And, and the Italians in particular sent in, like, just full-blown troops. Like, they sent in, you know, uh, thousands of troops. Yeah, so last episode I talked about how 
a lot of the Western countries kind of committed to neutrality. So the Non-Intervention Committee was supposed to uphold this not neutrality and uh, kind of monitor to make sure nobody was intervening, but they were not doing a very good job. <laughs> yeah, the, the metaphor of, you know, the fox guarding the, the hen house or whatever does seem to stick here, and especially when you consider the, the number of Italian uh, submarines that were tasked with kind of preventing uh, any military aid from getting to Spain. Meanwhile, they would allow their own military aid to slip through. Um, so specifically, the, the Non-Intervention Committee meant that um, open support on the part of the, the the USSR, who obviously had some, some ideological reasons to want to support this like coalition of, of socialists, communists, and liberals in, in Spain. The Non-Intervention Committee meant that the USSR couldn't really do this openly without antagonizing uh, like prospective allies in Britain and, and France, who they were really interested in staying on, on good terms with when they were pretty acutely aware of the threat that the Nazi Germany posed to the liberal democratic and the socialist countries of Europe. So the, the USSR kind of had a delicate line to, to walk here where they wanted to send aid but couldn't send too much. So the international brigades were a pretty perfect way to have plausible deniability about giving aid. So they would encourage the, the communist parties from around the world to organize and send volunteers while they could still keep a relatively hands-off distance. Uh, and then, of course, they sent a whole bunch of, of military aid themselves and a lot of military advisors and commanders who ended up working their way into the International Brigade's command structure and you know taking on these great non-de-guerre and that sort of thing. But uh, going back to that number, more than 35,000 international volunteers. And I think that you commented that it's closer to 40,000? It's, it's closer to 40, um, according to some numbers, because there were about 5,000 volunteers who ended up fighting with either the, like the CNT, the anarchist militias, or with the, P, the PUM. Okay, so who were fighting in militias, but not necessarily trapped or registered with the international brigades. Exactly, yeah. So nowadays, there's still a lot of interest in the Spanish Civil War, and there have been efforts in many countries to track these volunteers. You can see some of those efforts on digital projects and websites. The United States has a robust database run by the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives. Uh, SIDBRINT is a Spanish project that seeks to digitize the historical memory of the Spanish Civil War uh, and the international brigades. And according to scholar gossip, similar databases are under construction in Great Britain, Uruguay, Germany, France, Italy, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And we also have a database of Canadian volunteers, which you can find on our project website, SpanishCivilWar.ca. And it's built using data collected by many historians and librarians, primarily Michael Petru, Myron Momrick, and Raymond Hoff. And it's constantly evolving, so Kevin and I, between us, add more information every single day. <laughs> we often get contacted by relatives who either have information to share with us or want us to help them find information. Um, and this database has a lot to tell us about the Canadians who volunteered in Spain, who were better known as the MacPaps. So please get in touch if you have any information about any uh, volunteer at all. Yeah, and go search your uh, surname to see if you have a secret <laughs> volunteer relative that you never knew about. Yeah, a secret communist in the attic kind of thing, yeah. Throughout this episode, we're going to be using the term MacPap a lot. And that's, of course, a shortened form of Mackenzie Papineau's. Um, and it functions as a kind of catch-all term for Canadian volunteers, though many did not fight with the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. 
So historian and journalist Michael Petru notes that 78% of Canadian volunteers were born abroad, that is, they were immigrants to Canada before they traveled to Spain. And many chose to fight with their original countrymen and joined other battalions, which were often organized by region or language or nationality. So the Hungarian Rakosi Battalion and the Balkan Dimitrov Battalion contained a, a lot of Canadians. Of the 1,700 Canadians, there were lots of different origins represented. Uh, I think Ukrainians made up the largest like subnational group with 239 volunteers. Um, Hungarians, uh, 135. 116 Finns and uh, 100 uh, English volunteers. And that's from uh, Michael Petru's book, Renegades. Um, and that gives me a chance to talk about something else that's going to come up a lot in future episodes, which is uh, provisionary whiteness. <laughs> uh, the best way to explain this, I think, is that our understanding of whiteness shifts depending on different historical contexts um, and political contexts. So nowadays there are many European national groups who we identify as white, who in the past would not have been identified as white. And there's a great book about this called White Civility, um, which kind of traces the shifts of whiteness um, and who has access to whiteness and its privileges throughout Canadian history and literature. And this actually goes back to a book, which I will also cite on the website, which was aimed at Canadian immigration policy and which ranked the acceptable and desirable national groups and kind of provided ranking of who should have access to British Canadian white citizenship at that time. Uh, so in the 1930s, groups like Hungarians, Ukrainians would not necessarily have been considered white and would not necessarily have been identified as Canadian citizens, especially since Canadian citizenship wasn't a legal category at that point, it was British citizenship. I think that's that's really yeah, important to keep in mind when you're considering that a lot of the different national groups in Canada at this time would have had very distinct kind of subcultural uh, national identities that they would have held to in part because, you know, linguistic groups and that sort of thing, but also because they were really marginalized and, and racialized within within the country. And I guess the, the other thing that I, I would say here, too, is it's interesting just to keep in mind that Eastern Europeans remain like very racialized in the UK in particular, if you want to look at a kind of a contemporary example where particularly uh, people from Poland haven't really been included into the category of whiteness in the same way there as, as they have been in, in Canada or elsewhere. Of course, this doesn't mean that these people would have been considered people of color and have suffered that kind of oppression or experience. So we'll talk in the future about how uh, African Canadians and African Americans would have been a part or not a part of these leftist movements and struggles. But also Asian Canadians had very different experiences during the 1930s and Indigenous Canadians had very different experiences, and these European groups would have had a lot more privileges than than more racialized peoples. Yeah, yeah, always, always important to, to keep in mind that understandings of how whiteness is contingent can be used for really reactionary purposes. Like if you if you ever follow the you know the Irish slaves myth and that sort oh, of thing, yeah. we're, we're not we're not promoting that sort of thinking. We're just saying that that whiteness is contingent. Um, yeah, and. Uh, and in the, in the sense that whiteness is contingent, these 
people who have a kind of provisionary access to whiteness may perform racism in order to maintain that access. So absolutely. I think that that will be important in future episodes, especially when we talk about the Canadian context, because a lot of the uh, fascism or reactionary politics or anti-communism in Canada in the 1930s did use the language of whiteness and Britishness and civility versus stereotypes about European national groups and xenophobic attitudes. For sure. The outside agitator is definitely not a new figure when you when you hear about uh, protests today. Exactly. So yeah, there, there are some, some kind of interesting, um, almost tropes at this point when you, when you think of the travel to Spain. So the, the Canadians who, you know, ended up crossing the Atlantic would often gather in, in Toronto on their way uh, to Spain. And uh, depending on the time of year, the, the ships would either depart from uh, Montreal or Halifax for the most part and sail usually to, well, eventually to France, but often through the United Kingdom on their way. Uh, some of them also would end up crossing the border, particularly at Niagara Falls. You see that a lot in, in, in the accounts of this and uh, leaving through New York. There were some some serious kind of impediments to travel to Spain, the most obvious of them being the uh, the Foreign Enlistment Act of, of 1937, which made it illegal to serve in another country's military. And this was specifically targeted at the uh, the Canadian volunteers who wanted to go to Spain. So they would end up having to get their passports stamped uh, not valid for Spain, and they'd have to circumvent this in a number of ways. One of the most common ones was saying that you were going to the, the World Fair in Paris, which led to some pretty funny uh, situations where these you know working class or particularly these unemployed men who you know w- would wear very you know torn worn clothing and wouldn't even have a suitcase to their name would be would be heading to the get on a steamboat and saying they were going to Paris to participate in the World Fair, which I don't think fooled too many people, but was enough of a pretense to get them out of the country. Yeah, and I get the sense from accounts that a lot of sailors and border guards were fellow travelers or allies. Um, who would look the other way? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and once they ended up getting to France, you there, there are stories about a lot of a lot of waiting around, and kind of clandestinely figuring out who else was was headed to Spain. The fact that that uh, most of these men could figure out who on the ship was also headed to Spain suggests that the authorities probably could have too. If they were really dedicated to stopping them. But when, when I was speaking of the tropes earlier about traveling to Spain, probably the most famous one is, is climbing uh, over the Pyrenees, um, which were the, the mountains, uh, mountain range that ran in between France and Spain. And this was especially crucial after, uh, you know, the more official ways of getting into Spain were shut down um, and the non-intervention patrols plus, you know, Italian submarines were really making sure that, that ships couldn't uh, access Spanish ports. And in terms of the trope of climbing the Pyrenees, this shows up in the Canadian-Spanish Civil War novel This Time a Better Earth by Ted Allen, which we'll talk about in the future, um, which actually begins with the moment of kind of climbing the Pyrenees and arriving into Spain. And probably the most pertinent example of the perils of using uh, ships to access Spain comes in in the form of the Ciudad de Barcelona. Mm -hmm. So uh, just reading from Victor Horror's book, The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, he writes about how on May 29th, 1937, the Ciudad de Barcelona, bound from Marseille with 250 volunteers, was torpedoed off Malgrat, Spain by an Italian submarine. 
Some 20 Canadians were aboard the vessel, so the ship sank. Many Canadian volunteers and other international volunteers died, and others were rescued by local fishermen and other people who lived on the coast. There's a lot of stories from Canadian volunteers who survived that or who lost friends and comrades in that sinking. Absolutely. So once they arrived in Spain, depending on when they arrived, uh, they would often be sorted into English-speaking battalions. So the Abraham Lincoln Battalion and the George Washington Battalion, the two American battalions, contained a lot of Canadians. Um, But Canadians could also be found in Spanish battalions, in the ones we mentioned before, the Rikosi Battalion, the Balkan, Dimitrov Battalion, French battalions, like, all over the place. And Canadians who were kind of concentrated, especially in the American battalions, started to agitate for a more clear Canadian presence. And there's a lot of stories from Canadian volunteers about being read as American by Spaniards, by other people, and kind of resisting and saying, no, I'm Canadian. But especially in Spain, people had never heard of Canada and just uh, kind of refused to recognize Canadians as Canadians. And so it started to be more and more important for some of the Canadian volunteers to be recognized and to have their their nationality recognized. Uh, So one important thing to note is that the Abraham Lincoln Battalion and the George Washington Battalion were were combined in 1937, I believe, because the two battalions suffered such heavy losses at the Battle Battle of Brunete, they were not complete battalions anymore. So uh, that means the Canadians are even more concentrated. Um, and that leads to the forming of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. And it's worth worth noting here, too, that we, we use a lot of um, terms to refer to the kind of organization of the International Brigade, you know, brigade, battalion, section, company at certain points, and... Uh, they mostly just have to do with like unit level organization and, and within these larger structures there were often like smaller national groups. Uh, the Canadians for a long time were just kind of one little section of the uh, Lincoln Battalion and that sort of thing. So just worth, worth keeping in mind. Um, it's really hard to keep all of these different terms straight and really to figure out exactly how many you know, soldiers were in each group, but it, it doesn't make really any difference to what we're talking about here today. So Yeah, it's like trying to figure out how many students are in each Hogwarts house at each grade level. <laughs> it's never going to make sense. <laughs> well, and the, the numbers were always exaggerated, right? That's the whole, I mean, you hear about, you know, the 15th International Brigade, and there were only what, three or four of these different groups, but they pretended that there were 15 or oh, really? 129 or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a classic. I was wondering about that, because I've definitely seen other numbers, but I was like, wow, that's a lot of brigades. <laughs> So worth noting right now, as we're talking about military organization, is that Kevin and I are not military historians. No, we are not. We are, we not, are at not at all. We're not even historians. Well, are you a historian? Like, <laughs> no. Okay, no, I didn't I think mean, so. Not at all. <laughs> I feel like you would have told me by now. <laughs> Actually, um, no, no, I'm not. So we have read a lot of historical accounts, and we've read a lot of primary sources, and we do our best. And we also have corresponded with a lot of historians. But we are not historians. And in fact, uh, a Twitter user once endorsed me as a piss-poor historian. So (laughs) if you are having problems (laughs) with my expertise, uh, I'm doing my best. You can always tweet us or email us if you (laughs) have corrections. And we will do our best to correct them. Yeah. 
And we are going to cite a lot in this episode, two books um, primarily. So one is Renegades by Michael Petru, and the other is The Gallant Cause by Mark Zulke. Yes, and Zulke is a, a military historian, I believe, so he can, he can help us out. And Petru is also a trained historian and a partner on this project now, which is awesome. So in early June 1937, 500 Canadian volunteers were concentrated in the American battalions. So that's more Canadians in one place than there had ever been before. Um, and that gave them kind of a voice and sense of community in order to kind of make their case. Uh, but the 15th Brigade Command was really intent on creating a third American battalion. And they planned to name this battalion after the American labor activist Patrick Henry. But Ronald Liversedge, who has his own memoir of the Spanish Civil War, which is a great read, uh, Ronald Liversedge and many other Canadians started advocating to Robert Merriman, who was one of the commanding officers. They started advocating for a specifically Canadian battalion that would reflect Canada's labor history and that would be a kind of touchstone for Canadians at home and in Spain. So eventually Merriman gave permission for a Canadian company called the Mackenzie Papineau company, but Liversedge and his associates were not satisfied with that. And A. McLeod, who is a Canadian, comes to visit Spain to provide support for Canadians there, right? So yeah, McLeod was quite prominent member of the, the Communist Party of Canada at this point and was active in um, the, the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy. Um, and he was doing, I think, fact-finding in Spain and kind of trying to figure out how to best help the, the Canadian fundraising effort at home. And he ended up speaking, Liversedge has an account of this in his, his work, where he speaks to, McLeod speaks to a group of Lincoln's kind of mixed uh, Americans and Canadians and gives this impassioned uh, speech about Canadian history and particularly the history of the, the 1837 Upper and Lower uh, Canada Rebellions and explains, you know, that the Canadians have been fighting so hard in Spain and they really deserve their own, you know, recognition. And here's this great story of a, a revolutionary tradition in Canada that most Canadians, let alone Americans, have never heard of. So, and this, this supposedly kind of wing, wins over uh, everyone in the room and they unanimously vote to name the new battalion, the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Yeah, and this was a majority American audience for this speech, mm -hmm. so he did a good job. Even after they had formed the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, there were still like dominated by uh, U.S. Uh, commanders, and there were you know very few Canadians who ever got promoted to any kind of position of authority within within the battalion. So that's kind of interesting to keep in mind. And of course, like there were other national groups who were had a much uh, kind of worse relationship with with the U.S. Uh, volunteers. I think you can particularly be, well earlier you were talking about uh, African American volunteers and there were also a lot of Cuban volunteers who ended up serving with the the Americans and they typically get relegated to a footnote but I, I can't imagine that they had a particularly great relationship at times. Yeah and I imagine that they were really um, instrumental people in the battalion in terms of communication with the Spanish yeah, yeah, absolutely. troops. Um, and that makes me think of one pamphlet that we have digitized on our website, uh, Letters from Spain by Joe Dallet. Joe Dallet was the first commander of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, and he was American, um, and he died very early 
during the first battle that the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion participated in. Uh, so there's a collection that was created after his death of letters to his wife Kitty. Um, it's on our website and we also have a case study written by me that kind of contextualizes that pamphlet, both in terms of Joe Dallet's life and context and in terms of Canadian involvement in the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. So I will link to those. Absolutely. And it was just another fun footnote because we're just full of those today. I'm full of those as always. Um, and it was Kitty Dallet who was later married to Robert Oppenheimer of the Manhattan Project in building the first uh, atomic bomb for the U.S. So that's kind of an interesting rabbit hole that disappeared down if you have some time. Yeah. And when I wrote that case study on Joe Dallet, I did a lot of research that involved reading interviews between Kitty and the the Department of National Defense in the U.S., but I don't know what body it would have been, but they were screening Robert Oppenheimer and his wife Kitty to participate in the Manhattan Project, and so a lot of the information that is publicly available about Joe Dallet is through those interrogations. Right. The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion profoundly altered Canadian support for the Spanish cause. The shift is legible in the pages of the Daily Clarion, the Communist Party of Canada's newspaper. The paper's coverage of the Spanish Civil War was already incredibly thorough, but the new battalion garnered even more attention. The Clarion put out special issues devoted to the MacPaps, including letters and photographs from the volunteers, and correspondents such as Gene Watts and Ted Allen would frequently report on the MacPaps. And those are two figures who kind of feature prominently on our website, and I'm sure will feature even more prominently in future episodes. So through the miracle of shortwave radio, a Dominion Day broadcast had members of the MacPaps speak directly to their Canadian comrades, including a huge rally at Toronto's Queen's Park. The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion was a brilliant marketing tool that increased Canadian engagement in the Spanish conflict and focused Canadian fundraising efforts, particularly when the Association of Friends of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion was founded. And this, this is particularly interesting because, you know, using the language of marketing kind of makes me laugh, but it was absolutely what they were doing. Yeah, and a lot of the pamphlets and donation uh, requests and press around the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion refers to them as our boys in Spain. So I think having a name to put to our boys and a specific military body that Canadians could relate to uh, was really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think some of the ironies of, of using these uh, effectively propaganda techniques that, you know, that that language of our boys in Spain just echoes so much, you know, war propaganda that you'd hear in the First World War. And also it, a way of involving uh, women in fundraising um, because the language of our boys is so often used by women's groups of the 1930s and the 1900s in general, leftist women's groups, who took a very maternal attitude towards unemployed young men. So a lot of these men would have already been looked after <laughs> by different women's groups while they were unemployed or underemployed in Canada. And uh, the language of our boys is totally, totally like a way of kind of bringing in those women who had their own money and who would have wanted to support like young, vulnerable men. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Definitely relevant. All that care work once again. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Every time I think about strikes and marches and rallies i just think about all the people cooking <laughs> you know there has to be so many people cooking and finding things to cook Oof. yeah well yeah i mean the this, whenever someone talks about a general strike it's always important to remember who's still working right That's oh a, totally yeah whose work is actually totally vital <laughs> yeah, absolutely the friends of the mackenzie papineau battalion which we just mentioned 
uh, was a really important fundraising body in Canada. It coordinated aid, organized lecture tours, financially supported repatriation and rehabilitation of Canadian volunteers, and in a slightly modified ver- version as the veterans of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, would that be the right term? Yeah, I believe so. Continue to preserve the legacy of the volunteers for decades after the conflict. And there's some really interesting stuff on our website too, uh, scans of a lot of the fundraising materials, you know, from the pamphlets to the little buttons and all that stuff surrounding Spain. And at a certain point, there was a, a kind of a necessary split in the different organizations that were doing the fundraising because um, a lot of it was, you know, relief efforts for Spanish children or fundraising to do, you know, help civilians, that sort of thing. But then any of the fundraising that was going towards, you know, uh, military purposes eventually, I'm not sure what year it would have been, probably 37, was split off and, and put into these separate organizations, I think, to kind of avoid undue scrutiny from, from like, the repressive, you know, state apparatuses that, that really didn't want to see this stuff. Yeah, so, and that comes up in some of the footnotes of the accounts of these, these meetings, fundraising meetings that were going on and these big, big conferences that they put on. So that's definitely worth checking out if you have kind of an interest in that, the politics of respectability, I guess I would say, at this time. Yeah, and I wonder how this would fit in, but I, there are a lot of donation requests and fundraising requests that specifically talked about buying cigarettes and chocolate and socks for our boys in Spain. And there was a real effort to get a care package for every Canadian in Spain, mm-hmm. even with their names on the packages. Yeah. And Ronald Liversedge uh, writes about the total administrative nightmare of receiving all those packages <laughs> and having to get them to all these men all over Spain and uh, having to deal with the jealous international volunteers who had no access to these packages. <laughs> and I think Liversedge himself ended up having to give away his own package as a bribe to get people to ship packages to the Canadians at the front. So he right. never even got any of the cigarettes or chocolate. <laughs> And there's a real interesting tension that's always at work. <laughs> I think it's always at work in scholarship from outside of Spain on the Spanish Civil War and especially on the international brigades because it was such a moment of international solidarity and a moment where nationality and national borders maybe meant less than, you know, human rights and access to democracy and things like that. So there's this tension and we often... <laughs> get kind of critiques on this from other researchers that by focusing on Canada and Canadian involvement and having that as a kind of parameter on our research, we are kind of going against the very nature of this solidarity and these actions. But these critiques often come from people who are also (laughs) working within a national context and also have their own borders on their research. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the something that is like, bears repeating a, a number of times is that the histories, especially the English language histories, partly because that's all I can speak to, really, focus like heavily on the international brigades and then specifically on the English-speaking international brigades with some attention to, you know, the German, Italian, and, and French volunteers. Virtually no interest in Eastern European volunteers, partly because of language, probably as well, partly because of this, this racism that, that we were talking about earlier. And What's always overlooked and ignored is that this, as much as the international dimension of this of this war was crucial, particularly in in supplying, you know, arms to either side, the the actual fighting was done by Spaniards, like through and through. You know, 
35,000, 40,000 international volunteers wasn't kind of a drop in the bucket when you consider how large this conflict was by the end of the war. Yeah, we kind of forget that at, at the risk of, I would say, erasing the people who really like fought and died and, and had kind of the most invested in this in this conflict. And then, yeah, of course, as you were saying, the so many of these these volunteers from Canada, as, as we see in the fact that, you know, 78% of them were born outside of, of Canada, would have probably, you know, I'm putting words in their, their mouths now, but would have probably identified much more as members of either, you know, international political movements, international communists, or like members of a global proletariat, right? Like they weren't, these weren't people who were particularly interested in, in fighting for, uh, for one country's army, one country's principles, whatever it was. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's a real interesting tension that runs through that's also, yeah, about our research and does it efface this war as it was experienced by Spaniards, which is tough. But one of the approaches we're going to take to this podcast and that we've taken to our project is thinking about Canadian history and Canadian culture through this lens of the Spanish Civil War so that we get to learn what was going on in Canada all through the 1930s and how uh, that impacts us today and what our anti-fascism looked like then and what it looks like today and why this was so interesting to Canadians and why they continue to write about it. So, yeah, um, this is our lens, but we always hopefully remember that Spaniards are still suffering from this conflict more than anyone. Last night I watched the movie Guernica, 2016 movie about a American journalist in Spain who is present at the bombing of Guernica, which is a pretty infamous act of horrific warfare. And there was very much a trope that his romance with this Spanish woman and her death spoke to how like how Spain could be like a manic pixie dream girl for other countries, like making them realize why democracy was so important and why solidarity was so important, but then dying so that you didn't actually have any long-term commitment to the country you could just move on that is extremely yeah familiar if you've you know read uh for whom the bell tolls by Hemingway. oh yes yeah, yeah a, a host of other books that i think fall into a similar trap but now, now we're being as cynical as the uh... as the american journalist yeah yeah exactly as we know the republicans lost the spanish civil war and in october of 1938 the international brigades were all sent home there was a farewell rally, and Dolores Ibarui, who is a, a well-known communist figure and uh, one of the kind of figureheads of the Republican government in effort, uh, also known as La Pasionera, she gave a farewell speech to the International Brigades. We're going to listen to some of that speech now. They gave up everything. Their loves, their countries, home and fortune fathers, mothers, wives, brothers, sisters and children and they came and told us we are here. Your cause, Spain's cause, is ours. It is the cause of all mankind. Today they are going away. Many of them, thousands of them remain shrouded in the Spanish earth and all Spaniards will remember them with the deepest feeling. Comrades of the International Brigades, political reasons and reasons of state are sending you back, some to your own countries, others to forced exile. Comrades of the International Brigades, you can go proudly. 
You are history. You are legend. You are the heroic example of democracy's solidarity and universality. We shall not forget you. And this, yeah, this speech is, is all over the place when you're looking at the history of the International Brigades. It's on the, uh, the monument to the, the MACPAPs in Ottawa as well. And parts of it are inscribed along the, the base of it. The clip that you just heard is the most well-circulated section of that speech, but the speech itself is much longer and is very beautiful and moving. So many of the Canadians left Spain at that time, October 1938, and began to make their way home. And this, this process of, of leaving Spain, uh, I would say, wasn't quite as complicated as the process of getting to Spain. But again, we keep coming back to that, you know, 78% of the, the volunteers were, uh, were born outside of Canada. And for those who wanted to return to Canada, this presented quite a few problems, especially because their passports had either been uh, lost or any sort of identification documents had been had been lost during, you know, just about two years, two and a half years of fighting in Spain. In some cases, the, the passports uh, and documents had been uh, kind of spirited away by NKVD agents who were like the, the Soviet secret police and had been used for uh, various kind of clandestine purposes in, in the near future. Most famously, yeah. a Canadian passport of a Spanish Civil War volunteer was used by the person who went to Mexico to assassinate Trotsky. And this is one of those things that I've looked into a bunch of times, and, and I, I can never find like some concrete sources on it, but it is really interesting if that's, if that's the case. So yeah, the, leaving, the, the departure from Spain on the part of these, these volunteers was obviously very complicated. Lack of documents, all this sort of stuff, and the Canadian government was very worried about uh, the Canadian volunteers for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons that they had made it illegal for the Canadians to to fight in Spain in the first place because they were concerned about these, you know, unemployed uh, radicals, unemployed socialists and communists going to Spain and then becoming uh, like proficient and in you know insurrection. Basically, they were worried they were going to return to Canada and and form the the hardened nucleus of, of an uprising. Which I'm sure was on the mind of quite a few of the volunteers. You know, that's that's not like out of the question. Uh, it obviously didn't come to fruition, but can, the Canadian government was interested in filtering out as many of these volunteers as they as they possibly could uh, on return home. So they sent uh, someone from one of the like diplomats, I guess, from London. Uh, his name was Andrew O'Kelly, and he was in charge of discerning who was a you know legitimate Canadian, uh, so to speak who could return to the country, who had, you know, been naturalized at some point, and who was trying to get into the country for, you know, nefarious purposes. They were definitely worried about spies as well as, uh, as, well as just the returning radicalized volunteers. So he, he went around the country and interviewed the, all kinds of the volunteers to make sure that they uh, knew enough about, about Canada that he could, you know, kind of plausibly consider them. And he was going around Spain? He was going around Spain, yeah. And he really was tremendously unpopular among the volunteers. And there, there's some really great stories about the kind of lines of questioning that he would pursue. Some of the classic stuff, you know, describe hockey, uh, explain, you know, who is the prime minister. Um, did He did ask for, like, kind of basic, what would be considered Canadian knowledge. And uh, and one of my favorite was he he was really asking one of the, one of the, the I think, Finns who had been living in northern Ontario to describe 
the town of South Porcupine, and he gave this, you know, impassioned and very vivid description of you know, the the specific hill somewhere and all this different stuff. And you know, I know the I know the chief of police. Like, here's a list of everyone I know in South Porcupine. He let him go, and and so these you know ridiculous schemes were did end up like excluding some people from returning to Canada. And there, there, Hans Ibbing, I believe his name was. He had ended up in Paris, I believe, and he he was a German citizen but had been living in Canada, and he was slated for deportation to Nazi Germany. And this was, you know, well known to be a death sentence, effectively. And he he went to the passport office, I believe it was, or like the German consulate in Paris, and, uh, you know, spoke. he figured that his best bet was to just try to kind of talk his way into getting a German passport so he could at least uh, leave leave France because otherwise he would end up in one of those French concentration camps on the border. And he got a passport, but the, the passport clerk was very aware. He was just greeted all over him that he had been in Spain. So, you know, he said with kind of a sinister smile, he stamped his, his passport, you know, only valid for return trip to Germany. This anonymous Canadian Pacific official took pity on him and basically said, I'm going to help you get onto a, like a CP steamer, uh, even though I'm not supposed to. So the two of them hid behind a collection of like cargo at the docks and waited until the very last second when the ship was about to leave and the two sailors were lifting up the gangplank and he just told him, grab this suitcase and just run and wave your, wave your paper. And he ran and waved his paper and the guys didn't care. They let him on. But the time they were out to see, the purser figured out that he wasn't actually supposed to be on the ship, but they, they weren't going to turn around. And when they got to Halifax, he talked to someone in, in the, like the passport office or, or whatever. I'm now referring to any sort of bureaucracy as the passport office, I guess. And he talked to someone there, and he you know, realized that he wasn't supposed to be there. And this guy was kind of filled with disdain, but effectively said, I'm not going to be responsible for deporting you to your death. Like, welcome to Canada, and, and stamped it for entry, and, and he made it back. So... I believe there were at least a few nominally Canadian volunteers who who didn't who were probably deported uh, to their deaths, but at least Hans Ibing made it back. So it makes me think of two things. So as much as I laughed at Colonel Kelly's screening methods, um, my friend Brittany Krauss uh, does is doing her PhD work on refugee literature, and that is like hearing listening for accents and descriptions of home places is a way that refugee claims are screened in some places and it's really horrific because it just totally takes it just totally destroys any nuance in in you know the ways that we are raised and the ways that we speak and how we learn to speak and how we are forced to move around or move around by choice anyway but it also makes me think about how contingent our immigration system is on everybody doing their jobs properly or you know everything going perfectly and there's all these ways that they that can get derailed and the case right now is Abdul Abdi who was a refugee from Somalia when he was just a toddler and then was taken into child welfare when he was six but the Canadian government who was his ward never filed citizenship for him and now they want to deport him for not having citizenship and it's just and the idea that like somebody in one office or a few people in different offices can throw somebody under the door and make sure that they get in safely 
even though the system is rigged against them is just so upsetting. Yeah, absolutely. Oof. Yeah, okay, so most of them made it home. <laughs> most of them made it home, yeah. Some of them were still in prisoner war camps and concentration camps for longer, but most came home in 1939, around February, and like, yeah, the winter, spring. They were greeted in Toronto. Those that made it to Toronto were greeted by a huge rally of like 2,000 people, which was pretty cool. Some of these Canadians went on to fight in World War II, some were not allowed to enlist yeah. because of their communist or red or Spanish Civil War histories. Mm -hmm. um, that seemed to be up to the people in charge in any given place, right? Uh, and yeah, if they could keep it a secret or not. You know, it was a bit ridiculous to not allow these volunteers to fight fascism for a second time. It wasn't like they were going to try to undermine the Canadian war effort, but of course, you know. And one of the wonderful ways, wonderful, bizarre, hypocritical ways that these volunteers have been described is as premature anti-fascists, mm -hmm. which uh, indicates that they were fighting the right people, but too early, therefore mm -hmm. it was not acceptable. Yeah, which is especially absurd when you, if you actually kind of take a look at when the Second World War started by any standard other than, you know, official history, it's 1931, you know, the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. It's like the Spanish Civil War is very clearly a part of World War II by almost any metric, you know what I mean? Yeah. And of course, one of the ways that Spanish Civil War scholars often try to buy for legitimacy, and that's a super cynical thing for me to say, is by describing the Spanish Civil War as the first battle of the Second World War. And that's legit. The Nazis especially used Spain as a place to test out military operations, train people, things like that. But it's also a pretty uh, racist thing to say because there sure, were sure. all of these conflicts happening in Japan and China and Manchuria and Ethiopia that were very much about fascist hostility. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. And we'll definitely touch on Ethiopia in a future episode. Yeah. Some of these Canadian volunteers were monitored by the RCMP. Nobody was ever charged under the Foreign Enlistment Act, which many of them violated. But they were monitored by RCMP officers, at least some of the volunteers, not all of them. But generally, they just continued to live their lives. Many of the volunteers chose to return to Spain to visit at various times. And there's a really great story. Do you want to tell this story about a sailor? So there was a former Canadian volunteer, uh, John Paddy McGilligut, uh, who was a sailor who was on shore in Barcelona in 1947 on leave. And uh, there's a quote from Petra about this. And he says, walking through the city, uh, he saw one of his former Civil War commanders now working as a streetside shoeshiner. McGilligut sat at his commander's stool, and although the two men recognized each other, they said nothing. The Spaniard, however, scrawled an address on a scrap of paper and tucked it inside McGilligut's pant leg. When McGilligut arrived at the address in Barcelona's red light district, Ten former members of the International Brigades, all Spaniards, were there to meet him. They hugged and kissed him, and as McGilligut recalled years later, tears just rolled down my goddamn cheeks. So that's, yeah, that one's pretty, pretty touching. This period is, you know, right in the fascist dictatorship, um, Franco's fascist dictatorship, and these Spanish Civil War comrades would have been lucky to have survived all of the executions, exiles and imprisonments after the war but just having this moment of comradeship within that oppressive state would have been really really something mm -hmm. 
yeah, there's a lot of research about the the white terror they call it that followed the the war. That's that's worth reading if you're you're interested in how the civil war kind of wound down and how the the persecution led by uh, led by Franco continued and you know forced labor and all kinds of nasty stuff all across the country. And that gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about the Pact of Forgetting. So in 1975, Franco died, which put an end to his dictatorship and brought Spain into a new era of government. And the government made the decision to uh, enforce a pact of silence. So it just it chose not to follow up on the crimes committed during the Spanish Civil War and during the dictatorship, which included the execution and disappearing of probably hundreds of thousands of people. And for a long time, that was very much the norm in Spain. People didn't learn a lot about the Spanish Civil War. They didn't talk about it. But now that's being really pushed against. And there's a lot of interesting writing and work that you can find on movements to exhume the past and to literally exhume the mass graves where victims of Franco's regime and the Spanish Civil War have been buried and to find relatives who have been long lost and to get some kind of closure or at least some kind of information. So that's really fascinating and not something that we'll be able to talk about, I don't think, but something that you can really find a lot of information about and which I'll include some links to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for those for those of you interested in the, you know, the Canadian context where, and, and I guess the, the U.S. context as well, where there's been a lot of debates about you know, public commemoration, monuments, that sort of thing. Uh, Spain has has had a very, like, serious kind of reckoning with this question for a long time, you know, the last 40, 50 years of, uh, of trying to decide, you know, which street names get to stay and which ones are taken down when they commemorate, you know, fascist, uh, fascist leaders, military figures, all that sort of stuff. Super interesting and challenging stuff yeah. going on there. Absolutely. As we said, Franco died in 1975, and in 1977, Canadian Spanish Civil War veterans were invited back to Spain. Um, so a large group of them traveled there. Yeah, and a lot of the more recent history of the the friends and veterans of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion is is sort of scattered across uh, a few different locations, like on the web, and I know there are like some scanned pamphlets floating around, particularly from the, the BC branch. It would be really interesting to kind of learn a little more about that. So if anyone listening to this knows more about that recent history, it would be great if they would get in touch and we could we could try to host some of that stuff on our website maybe. And one of the Canadian volunteers who returned to Spain in 1977, George Fishuk, after touring one of the battlefields he once fought on, suffered a heart attack and he was buried in Spain and he was buried not so far from his old comrades who died during the war itself, which is a really touching story as well. Yeah, I think that's all we want to talk about today. I think so. I think we <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. We covered all the things. No, we did not cover all the things, but we gave you so many leads on what we're going to cover in the future. So I'm going to post a lot of the sources that we mentioned on our website, but... A lot of them are text-based books and articles and pamphlets, and if that's not your thing, uh, if you came to this podcast because you're tired of reading books, (laughs) there's some documentaries, both radio and video, that you could check out. So The Spanish Crucible was a two-part special on the CBC show Living Out Loud. It's an audio documentary that was built out of interviews between CBC journalists named Mac Reynolds and Spanish Civil War veterans, Canadian Spanish Civil War veterans. 
So that's a really interesting piece because you get to hear from the veterans themselves. And there's a documentary available on the National Film Board website called Las Canadiens, which also involves uh, footage and interviews with the volunteers themselves and some pretty great footage of them partying. Tackling a little bit, I guess, about the history of of the commemoration of the MacPaps in Canada and just how the silence on this topic has been not just accidental for the first probably, what, 30, or 30 40 years after the end of the Spanish Civil War. Um, that's really interesting, especially the Spanish Crucible. Like those tapes that they recovered had been basically shelved at CBC because there wasn't much interest in talking publicly about the legacy of communists in a positive way. But our work that we're doing now comes out of the really hard work and rigorous work of people in Library and Archives Canada and in different academic programs and in different non-academic historical initiatives. We're really happy to build on that research and make it more accessible. Well, thanks for your help today, Kevin. Oh, no problem. Next episode on Listen In, I will be talking to Kevin again, this time about Norman Bethune, uh, who is the most famous Canadian to go to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Kevin is a certified Norman Bethune expert, and uh, Norman Bethune is a very popular figure with a very interesting history and a very interesting legacy. So listen in. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by me, Karina Mickelson, and Kevin Lavengi, and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. The clip from Dolores Iberruri's speech was performed by British actress Maxine Peake, and it's from an album she recorded with Billy Bragg and many other collaborators called Yerima Valley Brigadista. Our theme song is Libertad by Iriarte and Pezoa, and it's available on the Free Music Archive. Our outro music is Pete Bog Soldiers, performed by Luke Kelly. If you have any feedback on the show, you can get in touch with us on our website, SpanishCivilWar.ca, through Twitter, at CanadaSCW, and through my email, Karina, K-A-A-R-I-N-A dot Mickelson, M-I-K-A-L-S-O-N at dal.ca. And apologies for my echoey recording today. I was recording in a new space and I probably won't record in it again. So thank you for listening. Far and wide as the eye can wander Heath and bog are everywhere not a bird sings out to cheer us, oaks are standing.